Welcome to the Modern Mobility Podcast, brought to you by Modern Mobility Partners. This podcast is for transportation planners and enthusiasts who want to learn practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges. And now, here are your co-hosts, certified transportation planners, national experts, and thought leaders, Kelly Kemp and Kirsten Moat. Welcome to episode 15 of the Modern Mobility Podcast. I am Kelly Kemp. And I'm Kirsten Moat. And as always, we are your fabulous co-host. We are joined here today with our guest host, Shirag Date. Hey, Shirag, welcome back. Hey, everyone. Excited to be here. So Shirag joined us on our last episode talking about curb space for the future. So if you didn't tune in, which you should, uh, he is an urban designer and planner with Modern Mobility Partners, and we are really excited to have him here today. Uh, so in today's episode, we're going to go through nine steps to planning for parking in a changing transportation ecosystem. So let's go ahead and get started with a little bit of background. So parking, like, isn't that the most wonderful experience uh, as a car owner? <laughs> That's what I look forward to every day. I know. So, you know, driving around the city, circling the block, hunting for that elusive parking space. Yeah, that is not fun. So spending time looking for a parking space is perhaps one of the worst parts of owning a car other than the expense. But yeah, especially if you live in an urban area. So there was a study done in 2017 that states that Americans spend an average of 17 hours per year searching for parking. Uh, and depending on your value of time, that can result in a cost of $345 per driver and wasted time, fuel, and emissions. But those numbers get much higher in major metropolitan areas such as New York, where it's 107 hours uh, wasted per year searching for parking and more than $2,200 annually. So parking prices in certain areas certainly affect the, the customer traffic for local businesses. Uh, this, in turn, is a tool that cities can use to delicately balance ensuring sufficient parking for the residents and visitors, but avoiding unnecessary traffic in the destination center. So it's striking that that balance is always a challenge. You know, we've talked a lot in previous episodes, and I believe it was episode one where we talked about preparing for connected and autonomous vehicles. And so today we're going to kind of tie it together and go into a little deeper dive as it relates to parking and the potential impacts of connected and autonomous vehicles. So, you know, there has been an advent of connected, mostly vehicles. So those vehicles that can talk to each other, talk to the infrastructure, like the traffic signals and back to the transportation management center where the signals are managed. Um, and then the autonomous part is the driverless part of vehicles. So, you know, as many of you may know, um, if you're transportation nerds like ourselves, there's different levels of driverless vehicles and those capabilities are increasing over time as they, as they test them out and improve technology. So right now, you know, we're not completely driverless, but we will be in the future. Um, and you know, as the market share of these driverless, uh, vehicles increase in the, in the abilities of these vehicles, planning for parking, may change way more than we think. So that's something we want to kind of spend some time on today going through. You know, I'll also say that back in 2017, the U.S. House passed the Self-Drive Act. 
And that permits autonomous vehicle manufacturers to deploy up to 25,000 test vehicles per year and 100,000 annually in three years' time. Uh, Some states, such as Washington, have gone even further, and they signed executive orders that enable test programs to take place without a human driver behind the wheel. So that's kind of a big deal. Uh, And these state-by-state leniencies are kind of set to speed up the autonomous vehicle technological development significantly. And there are estimates that range very wide. Um, but some of the, the latest estimates say that there will be approximately 23 million autonomous vehicles on U.S. highways by 2035. So we're in 2022. That's only 13 years from now. I don't know, Kirsten, have you, I know that you uh, are in this space a lot. Have you heard, does that sound about right? Have you heard different? I think it's hard to say, you know, in millions, how many vehicles will be out there. I I have heard that by 2035, there will be significantly more autonomous vehicles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's going to take quite a while for the entire vehicle fleet to turn over to autonomous. Sure. I've, I've heard, I've heard that it could be as far out as 2050 or even 2060 mm-hmm. before, you know, all the vehicles that you see on the road are driverless. But yeah. I, I think there'll be pretty decent saturation. Uh, with AVs somewhere in 2035 or 2040. Yeah, and that mix you talk about is so important where you have human-driven and no human behind the wheel vehicles together on the roads. That's that's going to be the most challenging times, but that's a whole nother podcast in and of itself. So I know, you know, it's going to be really interesting to to see how all of these changes to the transportation ecosystem is going to affect the the general population. Yeah, I mean, the potential implications to the public are vast. So, you know, in most cities, there are parking apps that are available and they help us find available parking, but also the cheapest parking available nowadays. Um, And even though that helps us save some of the hassle, uh, the activity of actually driving into the parking lot, parking your car, walking back to where you want to go, is is certainly something I can do without, especially, you know, if I'm in a downtown area or I'm going to the office and it's raining and the parking garage that I park in is, you know, <laughs> five blocks from the office. Like by the yeah. time I get in there, my feet are wet. Anyways, it's a process. But in the future, uh, people that have private autonomous cars, meaning like they own their own driverless car, they'll be able to have the car find a parking spot and park itself. The car will Mm -hmm. be able to come back and get them when they're ready. Or they can have the car cruise around the city until they're ready to be picked up again. But we're going to talk about some negative impacts of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in each of these instances, there are pros and cons. So autonomous cars could be programmed to find the cheapest parking available, and they'll probably travel further away from the city center to park if that's if that's where your destination is. A 2019 study in Seattle found that uh, factors like energy use, emissions, parking revenue, and vehicle miles traveled to measure uh, travel demand for autonomous vehicles looking for parking after dropping their owners off. So in each of these three instances, there are pros and cons. So 
One is that autonomous cars that are programmed to find the cheapest parking may end up traveling further away from the city center. And I know there was a study done in 2019 in Seattle that looked at the demand and included certain factors. I know, Shrog, you did a little bit of research on this. You want to kind of give us a little bit of insight? Uh, Sure. So uh, the study included factors like energy use, emissions, parking revenue, and vehicle miles traveled to basically measure the travel demand. Uh, for the AVs that were looking for cheaper parking after they drop off their owners. Uh, and the, they found out that, found out that the significant, a significant number of AVs preferred parking spots that were farther away from the city center, thus increasing the VMT and the overall time on the streets. Uh, if you, if we have gas powered AVs, they will add to the overall consumption, although we know that most of the uh, AVs in the future will probably be electric. So. Can I just interject here for a minute? If I was a private owner, of, I'm gonna just going to play devil's advocate here. If I were a private owner of an autonomous vehicle and I'm trying to reduce my costs as much as possible, as we always are, right? I would have the autonomous vehicle drop me off and then I could care less if I'm just playing devil's advocate what mm-hmm. the traffic's going to be while I'm working, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so. Yes, it's gonna go as far as possible. So, I, I think the the that threshold, and and I think we talk about this a little bit later, is how much energy the car is using, whether it's electric or um, gas, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, you think about an autonomous car that's just cruising around until it's time to pick you up. You've got vehicle miles being traveled on the roadway, adding to the traffic, and mm-hmm. it's not even moving a human being. Yeah. And right. so, <laughs> like, not only is it causing additional traffic problems, it is also consuming that unnecessary energy, whether it's gas or electricity, and is also contributing to the wear and tear of the infrastructure. So, while I don't I feel personally that that's not a great option moving forward. It's not very sustainable. But, you know, if if society went to more subscription based service Mm -hmm. for autonomous vehicles or ride sharing services where that vehicle could have more utility in the times that you personally are not using it, then, you know, that car could be driving around giving other people rides uh, rather than just driving around empty. Yeah. And, and I think that I was just thinking, what if there is a way, and I, this could be one of my harebrained ideas. Um, but what if there's a way to require anyone that purchases during a certain time period during that transition so that we ensure we don't have these robo zero occupant vehicles driving around town cruising with no one in them? What if there is a way for us to, um, or policymakers to say, okay, between the years from here and to here, you know, if you purchase a, an autonomous vehicle, there's an incentive to um, also farm out your vehicle during the day when you're, or whenever you're not using it, you know, so it is a, um, maybe not a subscription service, but a, you know, ride sharing vehicle. So it's like Uber, but you don't have to be in it. Right. Yeah. And there's an incentive. So it's not, and it's, 
maybe it's during peak hours or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, it better be a high incentive because if I'm spending the yeah. money on an autonomous vehicle that's electric, which you know is not going to be cheap, I don't want mm-hmm. just anybody getting in my car. That is true. That's true. <laughs> maybe, so it must be a good incentive. <laughs> maybe it's like a fat tax credit. <laughs> or they pay for my car. <laughs> yeah, or that too. <laughs> Minor detail. But I mean, okay, the, we'll, the talk, nice, we'll yeah. talk that up to one of Kelly's harebrained ideas. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's I don't think it's far fetched. I'm just saying personally, I don't want people in my car making a mess, eating. That's true. That's true. But I mean, there's there's also a lot of benefit to, you know, this this thought of autonomous cars coming back and coming to get you when you're ready. Yeah. And, you know, you not having to deal with the parking situation. And maybe it did go park somewhere. Maybe it's driving around. But, right. you know, it, it's really nice, especially for events that, you know, parking is really tough. Like uh, we have Mercedes-Benz Stadium here. So if you're going to a football game or a soccer game and you don't want to worry about parking, you know, it can just drop you off and then come back and pick you up. So I like the thought of that a lot. You know, there's like cell phone lots at the airports, right? Yeah. So so maybe it's a similar concept that like, you know, when you're ready to beckon your vehicle, it comes from this holding lot that's further away and cheaper, but it's not, you know, going to cause it's not so far away or something. I don't know. Maybe it's like in an industrial area that's low cost or I don't know. So I think that's a good segue. So what do we do as transportation planners to think through some of these things? Yeah. I think it's, you know, important to know that even if autonomous vehicles are coming, they're not here yet. And they're certainly not the majority and they won't be for a while. I mean, even if there's more saturation by 2035, I don't think that they'll be full saturation of the market uh, for decades. So a lot of the planning for parking and road space is really based on conjecture and projections. There's there's still too many variables. So us as planners, we need to find ways to customize the current parking standards, strategies, and design, but also think about these questions of, of how are driverless cars going to play a part in this And how can we not only customize the current parking, but also prepare parking for the uh, integration of driverless cars in the future? So we don't know if the autonomous cars will always be owned privately or if there'll be more of a subscription or car sharing model in the future. But what we do know is that there will be a considerable amount of time in the future where conventional automobiles and driverless cars share the road and the parking lots. And this transition from driverless or from driven cars by humans (laughs) to autonomous (laughs) vehicles is not going to happen overnight. And and I think that's really where the crucial planning aspect comes in, because there's 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 a lot of conflict and mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of safety concerns. Uh, so it's going to be um, it's going to be very interesting to see how how all of this plays out. And, and one thing I'd just add is that as transportation planners and, and land use planners alike, you know, we have to plan out 20, 30 years. And so we're looking at the year 2050 a lot when we're doing our tra- long range transportation plans. And so we do have to go ahead and start thinking about some of this now. Now, granted, we get to update them every four or five years, but, you know, we want to start thinking about this now. Yeah. 
And, you know, I think us as transportation planners, our last episode, we talked about curbside management, but very related to that is this parking issue. And planners need to be working with parking professionals. And yes, there are parking professionals to kind of figure out how to take control of the curb and how to manage that better. So finding a way to control the activities along the curb is um, a, a very high concern for parking professionals. And I think we can work with them to help understand how different curb activities can function simultaneously um, and in tandem with each other. So utilizing curb space for other things other than parking and, you know, just trying to figure out how do you fit in delivery vehicles, food trucks, uh, bike parking, uh, loading zones, drop off areas, you know, all of these factors are related to the parking issue and what we can do with it. So I think the the lesson here is that we as planners, as far as parking and autonomous vehicles, we have to be ready for anything. And we really need to focus on utilizing the excess capacity um, in future parking lots. Um, that's that's really going to be the key for planning sustainably um, for vehicles in the future. So yeah. enough of enough of me pontificating about what I think us as planners <laughs> should be doing. Um, so let's, without further ado, let's jump into these nine steps for planning for parking in a changing transportation ecosystem. So Shirag, you are up. All right. Thanks, Kirsten and Kelly. Uh, autonomous vehicles, riding sh- ride-sharing act services, and others will certainly change the way we look at parking. All right. Let's start with the first step. Step one, researching and finalizing a parking count standard. Uh, let me get to some basics before we dive into it. Parking requirements are a form of land use regulation that prescribes a specific amount of parking to be provided by the developer on any new development. They can include both parking minimums and maximums. Minimums are more common in zoning codes across the nations. Maximum is more of a newer uh, way of handling parking demand and use. Uh, an example of a parking requirement count could be a retail space requiring five parking spaces per 1,000 square feet of retail. Uh, these factors are based on the intended use of the space and the expected amount of people using the space. Uh, parking requirements now date back to mid-20th century when the nation saw an explosive increase in car occupancy and suburban growth. Since then, uh, parking counts have evolved, albeit not as much as development patterns, <coughs> but there are certainly different factors that can be accounted for nowadays. Uh, developers who are planning the parking demand for the development should consider several factors, such as the location of the development, uh, the proximity to transit, market trends for upcoming developments as they finalize a parking count or a parking count standard to use. On cities and counties side, uh, they specify the parking standards, as I stated before, and more often than not, developers have to follow them. Uh, conventional parking standards generally produce higher numbers. So, uh, since also there, since there are parking minimums, they aim to accommodate the peak demand for parking, which results in a sea of unused parking on most days. One example, which is pretty common, is like the sea of parking space we have around shopping malls because they, the minimum parking requirement aims to satisfy the, the peak periods of shopping. That's why you have that much parking space around shopping mall. Yeah. Like I, um, I live in the suburbs and I, I mean, I see this 
quite a bit. Um, and it, it drives me nuts. Like you've got this building and you've got people using it, yet you just have these large land masses of asphalt mm-hmm. that are unused. In fact, so underutilized that one of the shopping malls near my house, at least once a year, they have a fair come in and the fairgrounds take up only a portion of the parking <laughs> at this mall. Like one corner of the entire parking surface area for this mall. Yeah, I can see it now. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, so, Shrog, in your experience, you know, what what are some things we can do as planners with regards to the, to these parking standards and these like minimums? Uh, so as master planners, like I said before, developers don't have much of a choice other than what the city has already prescribed regarding parking standards. There are some choices and we'll, we'll get to those later, but m- more often than not, they don't. So we as our, we as master planners, when we work with cities, understanding what the demand is and where the city wants to go ahead with their parking strategies and the kind of density they want, we can help them, uh, you know, modify their parking standards they could be weaved into overlay districts or we can recommend amendments to their ex- existing parking requirements which will help them sustain the certain level of density or the type of development they want in certain areas uh can can you explain for our one listener maybe two uh <laughs> what an overlay district is uh, so an overlay district or, or overlay zone is essentially a set of additional restrictions that are placed over on top of the existing uh, zoning restrictions. It's more restrictive in its nature. It is actually opposite to what a variance is, basically. So variance actually will give you more leeway in what you want to do, but an overlay will put more restrictions. I think some of the common overlay zones would be an overlay zone near the airport or a historic uh, overlay which I think like in historic overlays more about the architectural character, but you can also have more or, or different parking restrictions or requirements in those overlays area, overlay areas. Excellent. Now step two, calculating the parking demand based on the square footage and uses. So once we have finalized the parking requirement standards, the next step would be to calculate the number of spaces you actually need based on the proposed development square footage. The total amount of spaces that you need to sustain a development will give you the amount of area you need for parking. The availability of space on your development site will tell you if if you need to use lots or decks. Uh, We know that decks are more expensive than lots, obviously. Uh, It is also a common practice to phase the development. Like I've seen several private developers, like in the first phase, they have enough, enough space on their site so that you can satisfy the parking demand by having a parking lot. And eventually, as the demand picks up and the later phases of development come in, you actually invest in the parking deck because you get to fit more cars in less space. So I would just like to add an example here of my neighborhood. And I know I've griped about this in the past because it's my biggest one of my big pet peeves. But I do think that later, once we do have driverless cars, it would work for our neighborhood, but not now. So a perfect example is, so I live in the city of Decatur, which is like half a mile, I'm like a half a mile from the city of Atlanta proper city boundary, right? So it's in an urbanized area. It's not downtown, but it's an urbanized area, mm-hmm. urban area. 
And I live in a high density development that we've only been here a year and a half. So it's a new construction community. They're still building. And literally my house is like three feet apart from the the neighboring house. It looks like a townhome, but it's got three feet between it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's high density. Our garages are behind the house with an alleyway in the back. So in the front, we have a curb. So lots of folks have always been parking on that curb if they have an extra car that can't fit in the garage or if they have a guest, right? Mm -hmm. Because our driveways in the back are really short. So you can barely fit one car in it and you can't even fit it just driving in. You have to pull in sideways. It's a big ordeal. Anyway, so the thing is, is up until like like six months in, we have half the neighborhoods already populated. We got more folks moving in. And all of a sudden, we have all of these no parking signs plastered up along all the curbs along the entire neighborhood. We have absolutely no guest parking whatsoever. Okay. And so, of course, I wouldn't complain because that's what I do. I wouldn't complain to the builder. And they said that their site plan required that they basically said they don't have to include parking Mm -hmm. because they're, you know, we're, we're about maybe. Three quarters of a mile, maybe a mile walk from a, a train station, um, and maybe a block from a bus stop. Okay. So they want to encourage more transit. So we have no parking whatsoever, but they're like, but you can park in the church parking lot down the road because we've leased that space. And I'm like, and it's down a hill. I'm like, I know people, if my mom's coming to visit, she's not going to go park down the hill, like, you know, a thousand feet away or something and trek up the hill to come to my house from, I mean, that's ridiculous. Right. Yeah. But if it's driverless cars, Mm -hmm. right. They can drop people off, you know, and then go on across the street to the church parking lot where they've leased space, you know, and, and park there. And then you just summon your car when you need it. So yeah, work later, just not now. Yeah. That's, that's actually a really great segue into step three which is refining the required parking count based on shared parking potential. And I think mm-hmm. like like how you were saying, like right now cars are driven, so there are limitations on how far away you want the shared parking lot to be. So I think like more burden is on urban designers and developers to actually create the kind of dynamic that will that will balance that, right? That you that people are not super inconvenienced to use the shared parking potential. But yes, again, like later when we have driverless cars, it's going to be easier. Uh, but it is a common practice to to refine these conventional numbers uh, that we 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 base on the parking counts that we finalized uh, to to account for the shared parking potential. Uh, depending on how big your project is, where it is located, you could do this based on the demand on your site. If it's like a multi-acre property, or you can do it for an area or a region. Uh, so cities and counties, uh, they normally have like shared parking or parking reduction standards based on the location and type of development. It's normally like a percentage decrease in the amount of parking you would have to provide. Uh, you also have, they normally do it for mixed use developments. Uh, many cities also have what we call planned unit developments. It's essentially a multi-acre development, which, uh, if the idea is to provide a site plan that gets sanctioned by the city and you have more leeway to change some of the standards within your development. 
So you you can plan it the way you want. And in that case, you may you may change the shared parking potential ratios that, that are normally recommended by the city or that are available through several tools. Like, for example, uh, the Urban Land Institute, they they have I have, have used one of their parking tools uh, before for one of the projects. It's essentially a Excel spreadsheet which basically tells you uh, what kind of uses are there. It basically asks you what kind of uses are there in your development and uh, what is the amount of parking required, and then they calculate the shared parking potential depend depending on you know time of the day, day of the week, and essentially they give you the actual final numbers. So, so there are tools available uh, out there other than just the city and county standards that that will help developers understand how the parking demand, the shared parking potential can be met. So thinking about the shared parking potential, Shrog, what would you say are some of the basics to look at when considering shared parking? So uh, some of the basics would be uh, basically understanding how the multiple uses uh, that cater to the patrons fit together uh, different times of the day or different days of the week. Uh, for example, uh, I think this this goes back to what Kelly was saying. Uh, a church can share its parking with offices since it needs maximum parking mostly on Sundays when the offices are closed. So it can also be done based on certain percentages of spaces available at certain use during certain times. So it could be a whole parking lot is used for a different purpose on a different day. So there's a, there's a lot of room to be innovative and creative in that in that area. Yeah, and it sounds like, Kelly, in, in your case, the church has leased its yeah. parking lot to your builder, and so they're mm -hmm. actually getting revenue from it. Yeah, yeah. That's a whole other story, but I won't get into that. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's the incentive, too, right, for them to actually <laughs> offer to share that. All right. Uh, step number four. So once we have refined the numbers for the shared parking potential, there's this one extra step of adjusting the the parking count for the available street parking and transit availability. I would say some of the tools that I mentioned about, like the Urban Land Institute tool, for example, actually also has like a transit availability uh, component that we we can use. So a lot of this will can, will be taken care of by the tools you use, but this is one of the factors that will definitely reduce the required parking space. And you'll also account for the street parking uh, spaces, which will help you bring the number down because a lot of the people will be using the street parking as well. So basically what it's saying is, is if, you know, if there's a transit station or stop within X distance of the development, you can assume X percent reduction in parking availability needs. Correct. Yeah. Okay. It also, Which is, sorry, they ahead. just said no, they just said no parking in my neighborhood. <laughs> That's because they had to get one extra house in there instead of. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they exactly. did that extra little Actually, bit of revenue. They had a paved lot that was for the model home. But then at the very end, <laughs> once they sold them all, they went and built on the paved lot. So we, <laughs> so we have nothing. Yep. Sounds but about I'm right. not bitter at all. <laughs> you don't sound like it. It doesn't bother no, you. Not at all. No. Right. It's all for the greater good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So step number five, researching zoning and land use regulations for parking requirements. Uh, so this sort of ties in with step one. 
but I decided to include this here as a reminder to check back with the zoning codes to see if there are any specific standards that can affect the parking requirements. All the steps after this are more about the actual design and layout of the parking facility. So, so this is a good place in the process to see if we have all the data, you know, that we need to verify the counts that we have. So some of the examples, I guess, one thing, one example that comes to my mind is like many downtowns, uh, including Atlanta, they do not have a parking minimum. This means that the new development is not required to provide parking at all. Uh, so I think according to me, if that's the, if that's the scenario, providing parking becomes a divided burden between the city and the developer. It should be done in a way that it is located strategically, it is used efficiently, and it does not affect the city's architectural character negatively. So you don't see a bunch of parking lots on main streets, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, cities generally invest in public parking lots in their downtowns and other high-density areas to provide the necessary parking and regulate the traffic with parking prices. This we know. Uh, as a developer, if your development is farther away from a public lot, and if you're aware of the demand that you're bringing in, that your development is bringing in, you have the freedom to add one of one parking tag to your development or, or how many ever you want. Well, this is developers' chance to have some leeway in their parking counts since there isn't a minimum in place. And this also allows them to designate their entire parking garage as private, right? Like, Yes. If it's if it's a condo, they don't have to put in a parking garage, but they're going to for their residents, but they may not provide parking for um, the public. Let, let's say if there's like retail on the first floor. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Un unless they're in the overlay zone, which requires them to do that, like tying it back to. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So so I think I think you're right, Shrog. I mean, I think it's really important to understand the zoning ordinances, the codes, mm -hmm. overlay districts. You know, and and I think us as transportation planners, when we talked about this in a previous episode, it was mm -hmm. kind of an aha moment that yeah. we as transportation planners, I don't think we do a very good job of coordinating with our land use and zoning professionals to make mm -hmm. sure that what we're recommending is in compliance with those standards. So I think this is another uh, example of, of why that's important. Yeah, or or providing some foresight or or thought into what zoning should be changed mm -hmm. you know in in coordination with the zoning professionals say hey if we were to change it this would allow for this you know in the future so right. but yeah it, it was definitely an aha moment for us wasn't it kirsten yeah i remember yeah it's like duh <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know exactly it's like <laughs> wow <laughs> <laughs> all right uh, well, another tool that I can think of is uh, some cities have parking maximums instead of minimum. So this way, uh, it forces different entities to work together on shared parking strategies. Uh, it gives more control to cities since people rely more on public lots. And it encourages people to telecommute or use transit, which, uh, which also saves the area from becoming a sea of parking lots, basically, because people have to choose other options. Yeah. So as we move towards increasing use of autonomous vehicles, uh, cities are eventually going to have to provide standards and regulations for parking and the general use of autonomous vehicles. So that same study that we referenced earlier in 2019 in Seattle, uh, they were actually looking at how cities could experiment with a scaled vehicle miles traveled tax. And this would be a fee for autonomous vehicles based on the number of miles they've already traveled and uh, how much it would cost for them to enter like a downtown zone. 
I think, you know, vehicle mild travel tax is something that is being floated around uh, nationwide, if I'm not mistaken, Kelly. I think there's a pilot program that they're talking about as an alternative to uh, gas tax as more electric vehicles are coming into the market. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because if, yeah, if it's more electric vehicles, we're not going to have the motor fuel tax revenues to pay for infrastructure improvements. Yeah. But this, this in particular is um, for their downtown area. So it would, Mm -hmm. it it would essentially be a variable price, kind of like a, like a toll lane that if you've already traveled a lot of miles in that vehicle that day, your costs for entering the downtown area would be higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. That's an interesting concept. I think there's some legs to that. It's gonna there's it's gonna have some political hurdles, I'm sure, and and take a while to to get community support. But I do think that that's something that is a viable solution potentially. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that yeah. there's a lot of economic development implications that come with that. Mm-hmm. You know, if mm-hmm. you're charging people to get into a downtown area, that essentially is going to decrease the demand for people going downtown. And your downtown is supposed to be your economic center where people yeah. are supposed to go for events and entertainment and restaurants and shopping and, you know, work. And, you know, so I think there's a lot that has to be figured out before yeah. you could implement some sort of downtown zone. I know a lot of cities have looked at downtown zones and and pricing for those but mm-hmm. i don't know how yeah. far they've gotten yeah and, and then in the reverse direction you've got you know affordable housing implications because if you are disincentivized to move further out which isn't necessarily bad right we're trying not to have urban sprawl but you know the further you move out the cheaper the land is mm-hmm. and so you know that means that people that live further away because they can't afford um, more expensive homes, they now really are. It's even two strikes against them now to just go downtown because now they have to pay to go downtown. So, you know, there's definitely pros and cons. Yeah. A lot to consider. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Enough about fees and and zones. Yeah. We'll let you get back to it, Shrug. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> all right. We could talk about this all day long, Shrug. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, step six, uh, locating and configuring the actual parking lots or decks. So once we have the counts ready, uh, there are several factors that can tell us if we we need parking lots or parking decks, uh, one of which I mentioned before about the whole phasing aspect of it. Uh, but even before that, the first factor would obviously be the amount of space available. Parking decks, as we know, they take less space on ground as they stack the cars vertically. Uh, your site topography also plays an important role in decision making. Uh, generally, lots are cheaper than decks. Your split level decks could be cheaper than above ground decks. It really depends on how how considerable the topographic changes are on your site. Uh, and then the phasing of the site, which I've stated before, that it's more about how you phase it. If you want to use parking lots in the beginning and then parking decks after, that's something that uh, that developers can do. When you get to the actual parking decks, the dimensions of it and the design of it, what I have heard in in, in the different projects that I've worked on, uh, a 120 feet by 140 feet deck is considered as economical, and that and it's the it's the kind of the deck that makes use of the five percent slope on the longer side of the deck. If you guys have been in one, I'm sure you have, where the actual place where you park the cars is the ramp. So mm-hmm. essentially, the the shorter sides are the flatter sides. 
the flat sides. So typically in, in parking decks uh, like that, we can park 80 to 100 cars. The problem with those decks is that they, they don't have a potential to be repurposed because, yeah. because of the slope of the, of the main slab. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to interject with, with an example. So when I was at Georgia State, there was a building that I had lots of my classes in, and it was a converted parking deck. And it was all enclosed, and it had these huge, steep ramps that we had to walk up and down. <laughs> and it was in the middle. So the ramp was in the middle, and then the parking was on either side. So they enclosed everything, and we had to walk up and down these ramps. And uh, then the classrooms were where the parking used to be. I think okay. that they, I think oh. they just I think they just tore it down. Oh, but okay. That, it was, that it was is fascinating. Insane. Yeah. <laughs> There are so many things running through my head right now, but I'm going to keep it to myself. <laughs> I guess, uh, Kirsten, in, in your ex- in the example that you gave, since the ramps were in the middle, I think that was more of an issue. So, which basically tells us that as we as we plan parking decks, if we go for parking decks that have flat slabs, you want to go for ramps that are that are at the end, so you have more usable space to repurpose it. Mm-hmm. And and we also have to consider how the the future of cars is going to be, right? Uh, for example, uh, there was a study in 2018 by by students at the University of Toronto, uh, which basically said that once we once we have the uh, like a, I guess a, a AV a parking lot that was designed for AVs would would accommodate 62 percent more cars than conventional lot. As we get ready to accommodate more AVs in the future, our parking decks and lots will be able to store more cars. On the flip side, we'll we'll be able to if we keep the number of cars same, we get a lot of excess capacity that can be used for repurpose and whatnot. So so we should be more cognizant of how or what kind of designs are we using for our parking decks instead of just going now, for oh sorry go ahead sorry I was just going to say um, with AVs taking less space is that just because they're driverless and they can park closer together because you're not having to open doors. I, I assume that's why right. yeah. they take less space. Okay. Yes. Like yeah. the actual actual spot that a car requires is less because you don't open doors at the car. And also right, I think right. since they since they'll be communicating with each other too, it won't be like the actual driveway space will also be less because other cars will just move around when they know that like, you know, one of the cars is going to go out or come in or whatever. It's, it's pretty interesting. So kind of thinking about the excess capacity a little bit more um, and repurposing it in the future, it you know, these parking lots with extra capacity could could lead to more development opportunities, especially, you know, if they're facing the street. I know in downtown Atlanta, there's a lot of surface parking that are on like thoroughfare, like major thoroughfares for downtown Atlanta, like Peachtree mm-hmm. Street. Mm-hmm. That you know, if we no longer need that capacity, it could be a real economic development tool uh, to revitalize the street or the neighborhood. I think also, you know, one thing that we should consider when we're thinking about excess parking, uh, and this goes into a whole nother realm and and discussion. But I think we're all aware of the supply chain issues and freight storage issues. So you know, temporarily parking lots if they're not being utilized could act as a staging location for freight and i've i've actually seen that mm. in the suburbs where amazon um and other delivery companies have used 
these seas of parking lots where big mm-hmm. box retailers used to be, like where an old Kmart mm-hmm. was that's now like empty. I see a ton of uh, Amazon vehicles that that park there. So those those are some options, too. Yeah. And, and one thing that's kind of been running through my head is, kind of, you know, we've talked about um, surface lots and parking decks, but there's kind of a compromiser in between here that we don't do as often here in the U.S., although they've done it in New York and New Jersey area. But when Jennifer Zahn and I went over to China back in 2018, we I was mesmerized by this. I took a video and then we talked to a parking consultant. She's like, that is so old school. But um, are the automated parking systems. So we had gone to this big mall and we pull into the parking deck and and obviously, you know, um, land is, is prime real estate over there. And so they're trying to squeeze as much as possible into small spaces. And so we pull into this huge parking deck. But when we get in there, we realize that where there would normally be one parking space, there's two on top of each other using these automated parking systems. And it's actually, it's actually where there would be, um, uh, three, it's it's actually, they'd have them in these, it's three, it'd actually be six. And so you would, there's a an operator there that would stand there to kind of help you. But basically you pull into this little, it's like a, I can't even think about how to explain it, but you pull into this metal frame, I guess you could say, and then you hit this button, this big old red button on the side and it shuffles the deck. And so after you get out, of course. So um, you can basically fit six vehicles when you normally could have only fit three. And so the thought is, and then you can also do that in a surface lot, right? So in New York, New Jersey is where we saw, you know, they've done that in surface lots and they can go, you know, six, seven, eight vehicles high in a two spot area. So where you could normally fit two spots and all of a sudden you can fit 16 or something, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, cheaper than a parking deck but it's still a lot more expensive than a surface lot so it's kind of that in between but what if with that said what if you were to a developer a developer could build a smaller footprint parking deck mm-hmm. and allow enough room on each level each flat space level where you could have these automated parking systems and then later as there's less demand you can take that portion, those automated parking systems, those metal frames out, and then repurpose those for other uses, right? And then mm-hmm. at the same time, because you took up less of a footprint, you can now develop that the unused land for something else. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a good idea. I, when you talk about that, I think about the uh, Carvana commercials with mm-hmm. like uh-huh. the slot machine, like the you jump in the coin and you push the button and your car comes out. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. I I did not explain it very eloquently, but that's what it is essentially. And 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 so when we were over there, we were like I said, Jennifer and I were mesmerized by this, and we met with a parking consultant one day that was a friend of hers. And she was like, we've been doing this for 10 years. This is like old school. We even have better ways now. So I was like, man, we're so behind. Like, you know, we're a little bit behind when it comes to parking strategies in the U.S. So enough said. <laughs> All right. Uh, do you want me to move ahead for the steps? Yes. All go right. forth and prosper. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Step seven. Uh, locate inclusive and accessory spaces. 
So while we're working out the parking layout, we should accommodate for services and accessory spaces in the lot or the parking deck. Locating handicapped spaces near building access, uh, pickup or drop-off areas along curbs, uh, loading and unloading docks where appropriate with sufficient scope for their flow so that the, the, the freight can actually go in and out easily. Uh, all of those factors should be considered. And I say that we do, we do it during the design of the parking layout because if it's an afterthought, it's going to mess up your parking counts. It's going to mess up your, the way you assign spaces and the overall area you're taking. So that's definitely something that you have to consider while you're working on the parking layout. All right. Step number eight would be considering landscaping. So as parking lots get smaller with the advent of AVs, uh, they'll, they'll contribute less to the overall heat island effect in the cities. But until that happens, using appropriate landscaping to provide shade and reducing heat exposure can definitely help. I know there's a parking lot in downtown Atlanta. I think it's by the Tabernacle. Uh, it makes use of solar panels, which double up as shading devices for the actual cars. And I think it powers a lot as well. So I think that's, yeah, that's a pretty, pretty cool. That's a pretty neat, yeah. And it, it, it brings in, well, not, not landscaping. I would say it's more technology, but it's, it's like mm -hmm. things like that, 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 make the experience uh more enjoyable because you're not standing on in the heat or your car is not super hot okay so here's some here's a another dumb hair brain idea <laughs> <laughs> so you know how the cell phone towers and they they disguise them to look like fake trees Huge, oh. gigantic <laughs> fake trees. Yes. I wonder if they're ever going to do that for solar panels. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would imagine that they probably will. I mean, like, they're not the most attractive things. Mm -hmm. And I, I know the lot that you're talking about, Shrog. They're, they're like white and they're big mm -hmm. and they do provide shading, but like they're, they're, they're not the prettiest things I've ever no, seen. So. No. I they could definitely see house, them. Some fake house plants around. Yeah. <laughs> have, some, have some ivy growing up them. You know, add on some trellis. Get some, I don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't think that's a harebrained idea. I, I think that I like that one. <laughs> I mean, the, okay. Go on, Sharag. <laughs> going back to the, to the OGs of landscaping, essentially trees, right? <laughs> that's the, that's the original <laughs> landscaping. We, a lot of, it's, is it, a lot of developers are doing this now. We have a parking lot close to our estate where they essentially have uh, tree grooves in between the bays. So you got a 60 foot bay, which accommodates for two rows of parking and the driveway. And before you get onto the next bay, you have like a line of trees and it, you do compromise on the space essentially. But I think, I think now people are moving towards making the experience more bearable with the overall, you know, increasing temperatures in cities. So having, having tree grows between bays and even like using permeable materials, for example, pavers, uh, uh, permeable pavers, which basically allow the water to seep through. So you don't get a lot of stormwater runoff it, are some of the things that we can, uh, that we can look at. And I would say it's, it's more about like this, this doesn't essentially uh, how should I say this? It's not, it's not beneficial for the developer, but it's about the higher purpose of it, right? Like we're doing this right. for the planet. We're doing this for the city where we're building. Yeah, the it. sustainability. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that yeah, those good developers are are more willing to you know put in some 
put in some of these things that mm-hmm. are are meant to be sustainable and are really for the benefit of the people who are living there or working there, recognizing that, you know, they may not make money. But I, I promise you, they make money in other places. Yeah. <laughs> and again, we there there can always be incentives, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So talking a little bit about the green infrastructure, I mean, you talked about uh, the permeable materials like the pavers can can help. Um, you talked about the tree groves. I, th- I think that there's some other green infrastructure that you know, it could be incorporated into parking lots, especially, but even parking garages, like um, in parking lots, you could talk about rain gardens, you mm-hmm. could talk about uh, for parking garages, maybe, you know, some sort of rain storage system. I don't want to say barrels because barrels are probably not big enough for the water runoff mm-hmm. of a parking garage, but uh, like an underground stormwater storage system to help it filtrate before it gets released into the groundwater. Yeah. Again, another topic for another time, talking about yeah. green infrastructure, but... Yeah. Well, one other uh, way would be... So we're talking about all the excess capacity that we'll eventually get once we don't need as many spaces for or as big of a space for our, for our AV as compared to the cars we have right now. That excess capacity in a parking lot could be also used for uh, community parks or urban trails. You know, like you have, like walking through a parking lot or a CO parking lot is never a good experience. But if, if, if future designers plan the connections between buildings going through parking lots to be more pleasant, they would have the space to do that. You would incorporate, you'd be able to incorporate urban trails, you know, parklets and whatnot. So people actually have that, that area of refuge from the, the sea of asphalt. And if they don't want to go in the building, right? Like they're just chilling out there. So that's something that can definitely uh, be explored more. All right. Uh, so moving on to the last step. Step nine is incorporating technology. I feel like the solar panels, I, I spoke of them too soon. I feel like that, <laughs> that, that step, that part should be included in this step. Uh, well, we know technology is everywhere. So it's, it's not surprising that like parking companies and cities have been relying for quite some time on technology to manage their parking, parking space and demands. Uh, I know there are like demand planning algorithms that help in regulating payments and pricing, in turn elevating congestion. Uh, this is how basically cities or parking, parking management companies, they, they distribute traffic. So your app tells you, uh, like real time, how much, how many spaces are available where, what the pricing, uh, what what the pricing is for each space, and that basically affects your decision making, right? And that's how they distribute the traffic during peak hours or uh, during events. Uh, you, I, I also have seen in the research that there are a lot of real time, real time videos and digital displays that are available in parking lots, and they make use of sensors to detect cars entering and leaving to calculate the occupancy data. So this is more about collecting the data for the parking companies so that they understand how to have to plan for the upcoming demand if there's a tick if there's an uptake in the demand or or a downtick it's more about data collection in this case so would that also tie into communicating with the driverless vehicle you mm-hmm. know and so on the availability of parking and the price and all that at that particular parking location so that way you know it's it's 
one route from point A to B to get to the parking and the robo vehicles not going around searching for parking, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. I, I think it's gonna be like a like a hub of mobility of with these intelligent mm-hmm. vehicles where they are talking to each other, they know what to do, they know where to go. And as long as they're not programmed to find the cheapest parking lot, they probably wouldn't go all the way outside of the city because that's just gonna create more traffic mm-hmm. according to me. <laughs> <laughs> According to me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I think this was um, a really interesting conversation. I'm I'm thinking back through all of the nine steps. I think what makes me most excited is, you know, planning for parking that's flexible. So, you know, we understand that there are certain standards and regulations that have to be met. But how can we plan for this in a way that you could repurpose that parking for another use, especially when you start thinking about, you know, can you convert it to a parklet or, you know, some sort of of, um, green space as people are traveling from building to building. So um, I think there's a lot of opportunity there that could have a lot of benefit. Yeah, I I find this to be a very fascinating topic. And, you know, as y'all, our listener can probably tell, we could talk about this all day long. Um, And there's so many different nuances you know the more you peel the onion you know there's more layers that we we realize the thing that is most interesting to me and where i feel like we as transportation planners could have a significant impact over time is coming up with policies to incentivize or disincentivize um robo vehicles you know so we don't have driverless cars with no human in them just cruising around, you know, and mm-hmm. and clogging up the transportation network. So, you know, I think that's where we can really move the needle and put some thought in in advance and try to plan as best we can for for the unknown. So, you know, we talk about that a lot, planning for the unknown. Yeah. And thank you, Shirag, for educating us on uh, some of these parking standards. I was yeah. not... I was not aware of everything that has to go into the site planning. I mean, I knew there was a lot, but didn't know all the details. So I appreciate your insight and expertise. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you did a great job. All right. So with that, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you for tuning in. If you are a nationally certified planner through the American Institute of Certified Planners, This episode is eligible for AICP continuing maintenance credits. So you can find all of our podcasts, all of which are eligible on the AICP CM log within the American Planning Association website at www.planning.org. If you want to learn more about how we at Modern Mobility Partners can help you, you can find us at modernmobilitypartners.com. You can also find there a free downloadable cheat sheet with all the nine steps from today's episode on our website as well, as well as all the other podcasts. We have cheat sheets for those also. So don't forget to subscribe and even better review our podcast. And you can find us on all your podcast listening apps. And with that, we are over and out. Great. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Modern Mobility. If you work for an organization that has implemented innovative and practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges and are interested in being on our podcast, email us at podcast at modernmobilitypartners.com. Want to learn more about our consulting services? Check us out at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast.